0: Hey, this is Brian with Mid-City Vineyard Church. Mid-City Vineyard is located in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana on Canal Street. We worship on Saturday nights at 6 o'clock and would love to have you join us anytime. You can learn a little bit more about us on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard, Instagram at Mid-City Vineyard, and online midcityvineyard.org. This past week we celebrated Epiphany together. And so in this particular teaching, we were looking at the passage in Matthew where the wise men, the Magi, came to visit the Christ, came to worship and give gifts to the Christ. And we looked at this story from a few different angles as we really pressed into uh, the root of the story, the players of the story, and how the wise men... Found a new way forward in their lives after meeting the Christ, and how we might also do the same. Hope you enjoy. Much peace to you. So tonight, well, what is the, what's the date? January sixth. sixth. Yes. So today, did anybody eat king cake? All right, all right. So today is King's Day. And so we are actually going to stick with, uh, we're going to stick with the lectionary for probably at least for tonight, maybe another week or two as we uh, continue to move through the Christmas season Christmas tide and uh, what is known today as Epiphany. And so the scripture for this evening that we're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, and so I want to start just this evening by reading that passage, and then we're going to look at it uh, a little more intently. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars, or wise men, or magi, arrived in Jerusalem from the east, and they asked around, Hey, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth, and we're on a pilgrimage now to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified, and not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all of the high priests and the religious scholars in the city. He gathered them together and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they told him, Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet, uh, the prophet Micah wrote about it plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. And so Herod then arranged a secret meeting with these scholars from the east, pretending to be as devout as they were. He got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. And then he told them the prophecy about Bethlehem and said, Go find this child. Leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word, and I will join you at once to worship him. And instructed by the king, the wise men set off. And then the star appeared again. It was the same star that they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. And they could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. And they entered the house. And they saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. And overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. And then they opened up their luggage and they presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In a dream they were warned not to report back to Harry. So they worked out another route. They left the territory without being seen, and they returned to their own country. So today, we celebrate Epiphany. Epiphany, as it's understood on the church calendar, is a day... Of celebration. Now we understand the word epiphany here in our time and in our culture as as like when something uh, perhaps dawns on us, when something maybe resonates deeply within our soul, or something finally clicks in our mind. You know, we 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 wake from from something, or we have a, a conversation with someone, and we'll say, "Oh my goodness, it's as though I had an epiphany. It's as though uh, something inside of me just changed. It all makes sense now." And that's how we understand. This word to work. However, on the Christian calendar, this idea, this this understanding of Epiphany, this word, actually means when the when the divine reveals himself. Actually, uh, to to really put it in in uh, context, is when God reveals himself to the gentiles you see because when jesus was born into the time that he was born into the jewish nation see the jews had this understanding that god was a god of the jews for the jews and and they had gotten their wires crossed over the centuries that god actually desired to use the jewish people the people of israel to reveal god to all people But they they'd gotten their wires crossed, and they got some things messed up along the way, and they kind of came into this, their their own sense of, uh, like they had a monopoly on this God. And so Epiphany is when these wise men travel from afar, these men who are not Jewish, and they come before the divine in the flesh, and they worship God. So it's this understanding that God is... Not just for the Jews, but God is for the Gentiles also. Another way we could think about this, and a way that I would like to see us understand this, is that God is a God for all people. Nobody has the corner on God. Nobody has monopoly on, on God and, and, and who gets in and, and who doesn't. But God is a God for all people i think that this is what the incarnation is showing us is that god's like i love all of creation and all people so very much that i will reveal myself to all people not just a subgroup and i think that for us in this particular passage there's a lot to be gleaned here i mean you how many of you have heard this story before you know we, we understand that most of most of you have if you uh, have ever you know sat around a Christmas tree and read the read the story of the when they had the nativity in front of you and, and those kinds of things, or if you've been to church services uh, even just once in Christmas time, you've probably heard this story. And there are so many things that are taking place in the story that we might not really have paid much attention to, because I think culturally this story has become something uh, that it's actually uh, not. And so I want to look at this and, and, and break it up a little bit more this evening for us. First, I want to look at the different characters that we find in the story. And the first character that we find in the story is King Herod. How does how does the passage begin once again? It says, where am I? After Jesus was born. Okay, the first character is Jesus. Um, it w- oh, okay. Okay. And This is a different translation, but in another translation, it says, in the time of King Herod. It begins with Herod right here. And so Herod, here's a couple things you need to know about King Herod. First off, King Herod lived from 73 B.C. until 4 B.C. That right there is going to tell you a little something about Jesus' birth. Most scholars believe that Jesus was actually born uh, around between 6 and 4 B.C., in in order for him to have been born at the time that Herod was alive. So Herod was uh, was alive from 73 to 4 B.C. And Herod was known in the region as Herod the Great. Now, not everyone thought that Herod was great, but Herod certainly thought that he was great. And the way it worked in this time is that the area of uh, Judea was Roman territory. It was Roman-occupied territory, but the Romans would allow... Jewish leaders to continue to rule as as, uh, as kings and as governors in places as long as they would keep control of the people and keep the people in line with what Rome wanted. And so what Rome did is they put King Herod in place and they say, listen, this is Judea, this is yours, you take care of this, you're the king over these people, you are the king of the Jews and you just make sure you do everything the way we want it done and we'll continue to take care of you. So Herod was basically in the Romans' pocket. Herod was known again as Herod the Great. Herod was so great. He had 10 wives. Herod was so great that at one point one of his wives plotted a plan against him. And so you know what he did to this wife is he had her executed. But for good measure, he also executed her mother, and he executed two of her sons, which happened to also be his sons, in order to make sure that he kept the whole, all the playing field even. Herod was a terror. Herod was not great at all. Herod was quite evil. Herod would go to any length possible to make sure that his throne was secure. At one point, it's believed that Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, actually said, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Because he was so simply willing to just execute anyone at any time. And don't forget that this is the same Herod. Remember, we didn't read this part of the story. But after the wise men left, it says, and we'll get to this in a minute, but it says they left by a different route. They didn't go back to see Herod because they knew Herod was up to something. But it says that after the wise men left, that Herod then sent troops to the town of Bethlehem, to that region, and ordered the execution of every male child under the age of two years old. Incredible. This was the man who was known as the king of the Jews. So that's our first player in the story. The second players in the story are the wise men, or the magi, or the scholars. We can think of any number of names for these guys, but here's, here's the main idea, and here's what uh, historians, for the most part, understand and think they know about these people. First off, they were astrologers. This whole idea of them following a star in the sky, there could be, some real truth to that, that they actually followed a star in the sky. Now, some think maybe it was an angel. Some think that uh, uh, it was an actual star. I, I don't really know. Uh, I don't think that matters. But one thing is does seem pretty certain is that they were star readers. They were astronomers. They were astrologers. Many people believe that they came from the East. They came from Persia. I have that map there, John. So if you look right, let's see. So Judea is right here. Okay. So you have Judea down here, the, the, the pink area, which is where uh, Jesus is. This is where Herod's ruling. And so if you come further this way, out east, this is where Persia is. And so these guys, they, this wasn't just like an overnight camping trip for, for these folks. I mean, they, this, was a, this was a true hike for these men and or women who came to see the baby, Jesus. Now, these men were inquisitive. These men were learners. It says that they were scholars. It says that they were very bright people. Uh, this, is, this is kind of what research shows us about the wise men. And it's important to understand that they were not Jewish. But they were, very, they were so learned that they studied the stars. They took lots of different religious texts. They studied lots of different religious texts, more than likely. One of the uh, religious texts was the Jewish <coughs> Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, I'm actually not sure how to say it. It's T-A-N-A-K-H. I think it's the Tanakh. And, and they studied this set of scriptures. And so they had understandings of prophecies that were written in the scriptures. They, uh, whether it was the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, they, they probably had Babylonian readings and Assyrian uh, um, uh, ancient texts and all those kinds of things and lined up the stars and did their whole thing. And just for the record, there is no record that there were just three wise men. Now I know that from our cute little Christmas story, you know we set out our nativity and we set out our shepherds and our angel and we put Mary and Joseph in the in the manger and we put Jesus in the or we put them in the stable and we put Jesus in the manger and we bring the the three wise men and I think we get that because there were three gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we've turned it into a fun children's story. But there's no evidence that there were only three. Uh, there were there could have been as few as two. And some uh, some readings say that oftentimes these, these people would have traveled in groups of 12. So there could have been maybe as many as 12 wise men uh, that showed up. So there's that. Then we have the chief priest and the scribes, are our next characters that we find, the Jewish religious people, the ones who proclaim the prophecy that came out of the, the readings of Micah. They proclaim the prophecy to Herod. These are the men, the Jewish uh, scribes, the chief priests. These are the men who run the temple. Okay, these are the religious leaders, and that's going to be important to realize. They are the ones who keep Herod happy when it comes to the Jewish religion, even though Herod was not very religious. And Herod, in turn, keeps them happy. So if they can keep order, if they can keep things going smoothly in the Jewish temple, they can keep people under their thumb, they're keeping Herod happy. Herod then keeps them happy, continues to give them money, continues to give them position. And then the final character, characters in the story are Mary and the child, Jesus. So these are the players. So what are the moves that take place in this particular story? Well, let's look at the wise men for a minute. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judah Territory, during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars, these wise men, arrived in Jerusalem from the east, and they asked around. So keep this in mind. They arrived in Jerusalem, and they asked, where might we find the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. Everything we understand from how the stars work and how the, the writings in the ancient scriptures work, we have We have assessed that the the king of the Jews, the newborn king, has been born. Where might we go to worship him? So these are men who took their studies to heart. These are scholars who have gone back and forth um, studying these things, and now they are following through on what they believe has taken place. Now, just for fun, I thought you would enjoy this. But as I was studying this and thinking through this, and, and doing some reading, uh, here are a couple of theories about what might have happened when it came to the stars. One theory uh, that does seem to be backed uh, by research here is that the planets, Jupiter and Saturn, were actually in conjunction with each other three times in 7 BCE. <laughs> People put their whole lives to studying this kind of stuff. So I thought this was fascinating to me. I'll share this with you. Now here's the thing, Jupiter was known as the royal or the kingly planet during these times. Okay, so the royal planet would have been Jupiter. Saturn was actually thought to represent the Jewish people during this time. There were some who thought that Saturn represents the Jewish people, Jupiter represents the royal line. And so when these planets are in conjunction with each other, and when there's this lining up or however this works, the, the these astrologers, these astronomers think perhaps, wow, royalty. Jewish, Jewish royalty coming together, and this quite perhaps could have been the sign in the sky that they would have used to read the sign in the sky and apply that to the scriptures that they had been studying and perhaps follow that. Another theory, which I found even more interesting, was that in 1991, the Quarterly Journal of Royal Astronomical Society, I regularly read that journal, and that's how I came across this, um, noted that Chinese astronomers had observed a long-tailed, slow-moving comet in their skies during March 5 BCE. This star hung in the Capricorn region for more than 70 days. This same comet would have been visible in the skies over Persia in the hours just before dawn. And due to the Earth's orbital motion, the comet's light would have been directly in front of the Magi during their journey." (laughs) Which I thought, wow, that's, that's 1991 research. Fascinating. So what's the main point of the wise men in this story? Is it that they were star readers? Is it that, that, uh, that God revealed things to them through the stars? I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is that these were learned men who had it set in their hearts to follow through on the things that they had in their heart and they actually put everything aside to follow through on what they had learned, what I think, But I would suggest the Holy Spirit has placed within them to follow through and to move in a direction of seeking out and finding this king that they desire to worship. Now, you have to understand, these were not Christians. These were not Jews. These guys probably worshipped lots of different gods. But they were on their way to find another worthy of worship. So they make the journey into Jerusalem. That's their move. And what is the next move? Herod's move. When word of their inquiry... Here, there's, there's these people. They're in Jerusalem, and they're asking, where is the king of the Jews? When word of their inquiry reached Herod, he was terrified. And he gathered the high priest, he gathered the religious scholars together. He said, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? I'm not a religious guy. I'm, I'm quasi, quasi-Jewish. But you guys... You're the chief priests. You're the scholars. You guys should know. Where is this to take place? And they said, Bethlehem. That's what Micah the prophet wrote. Now notice, the chief priests and the scribes come in. Hey, where is this supposed to happen? And they say, it's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. And then they disappear. We don't see them again. Are they not the ones who know the scripture, are they not the ones who maybe should be thinking, hey, maybe something's taking place. Maybe we should go look. Uh, Wouldn't you expect that of the high priest? Wouldn't you expect that of the chief priest and the scholars? The ones who have studied the scripture, wouldn't they be the ones going to look for the Messiah, for the Christ? But they're not. They're not the ones who are most excited. Why not? Why not? I would suggest it's because they did not need a Messiah. I would suggest that it is because they did not want or need a Savior. You see, these chief priests, these high priests, these scribes, they were sitting pretty. They were already in a position of power. They ruled the temple. They were the religious leaders. They had everything they needed. They had houses. They had homes. They had money. They had power. They were in Herod's pocket, and they didn't want to do anything to upset that. And so they didn't. The chief priests and the scribes tell Herod, this is what you can expect, and then they disappear. The chief priests and the scribes are the ones who've been set apart, to lead the people, to say we are the ones who are supposed to reveal God to the whole world and yet they've lost the plot. They've lost the plot. Leading the way. They're no longer doing that. The very ones who should be showing Christ to the world, they're no longer doing that because they've forsaken their mission and they've forsaken their call for power and for prestige. And I would suggest that even today, and this is so important for us, whenever the church finds herself in cahoots with the powers that be, the church loses its mission and its voice in a world that desperately desperately needs the voice of the church. Anytime the church finds itself gaining power through politics and through who it backs and how it backs it and finding itself in the back pocket of the powers that be, we have lost the plot. That's exactly what happens to the scribes. That's exactly what happens to the high priests. And then next in our story, we have Herod and we have the wise men. Herod arranges a secret meeting Now think about this. A secret meeting with the scholars from the east, pretending to be devout like they are. And he says, listen, go find this child. Go find this king of the Jews that you look for. And come back and tell me. Tell me where I might find him so that I might worship him also. He invites these wise men into his city. He invites them to come in. And he says, tell me, tell me what you find. And what do we notice with these wise men? They go out from Herod, they go and they find Jesus. Now when they go find Jesus, where do they find Jesus? It's important to realize this too, they find Jesus in a home. The chances are by the time the wise men got there, Jesus is probably already one, at least one year old. Scholars believe he was anywhere from six months to two years old by the time the, the wise men got there. So even our understanding, Jesus was no longer in a manger. He, they were no longer in a stable. They were back home. He was in a home. By now, he's learned the word no. He's kind of a brat at this point. You know, he's got that, that 12-month-old kind of like no thing going on. That's all he knows. I mean, so this isn't like, oh, look at the little king. This is more like, oh, my gosh, put a pacifier in it kind of thing. You know, so that's, that's, what, that's where the wise men show up. But overcome, I, I love this word in the, in the passage, it says overcome by what they experienced, they kneeled down and worshipped. So in this movement of the story, how does this play out for us? Because the story is filled with political and religious bombshells, and ramifications. From a political standpoint, for the wise men to arrive, for them to stand before Herod and say, we are here looking for the King of the Jews. Imagine if you were invited to the White House. You're invited to the White House, and you you have a meeting with the President, and you stand in the Oval Office, and you say, yes, I am here looking for the President of the United States. As President Trump sits behind the desk, I'm here looking for the president of the United States. Or if you were to waltz into North Korea today and say to, to Kim Jong Un, "Hey, look, uh, we're here looking uh, like a group of us. You know, hey, we're here looking for the true ruler of North Korea. Uh, have, you, have you seen him anywhere, do you know where we might find him?" <laughs> and yet, that's exactly. I mean, that's exactly what these guys are doing. What what are, what what's happening here? Is that these scholars, these wise men, these shepherds, these eventual disciples of Jesus. When they say that Jesus is the king of the Jews, you know what they are also saying in turn is that Herod is not. When you say Jesus is Lord back in that time, 2000 years ago, when you say Jesus is Lord, what you are saying also is Caesar is not Lord. Now, why does this matter? It matters to the nth degree because at that time you walked around and you knelt and gave homage to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And Jesus is doing a new thing and the disciples are saying, no, 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 no. Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Whenever we say that Jesus is the source of my life. What we are saying is that nothing else is the source of my life. When we say that Jesus is the source of my trust, we are also saying that my bank account and my 401k and the job that I hold is not the source of my trust. It's not where I place my trust. When we say that Jesus alone is worthy of worship, we are in turn saying that nothing and no one else is worthy of Of my worship. When we say that Jesus is something, whatever Jesus is, we are saying that something else is losing its place in our life. And then, from a religious standpoint, for the wise men to arrive and to say that Jesus is for them, again, a group of non Jewish men. Saying that, listen, we don't know know the rules. We just know that what's taking place in us is leading us to this place of this Christ, to this Jesus. The Jews today, well, the Jews then, and the Jews still today, think that they have the corner on God and who can worship God. Christians today think that they have the corner on God. Muslims today think that they have the corner on God. And I think that this story reveals to us that nobody has the corner on God. God says, I I am for all people. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome to be a part of this kingdom, to be a part of this life. Jesus, the cosmic Christ, the one who comes, God incarnate, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit today now just moves about the planet, constantly inviting people to come about and to find the risen Christ and to worship, to worship the divine. And then finally, as wise men leave, it says, in a dream they were told, do not go back the same way. One writer said it like this. Is it possible that Matthew was giving us a hint that for the wise men, once and for all of us, once you've met Christ, the old roads and the old pathways no longer work. But we come to Christ for any number of ways, any number of, any, 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 we, we come in all kinds of different, we get there, we get there. And what happens when we come to truly meet Christ? What happens when the Spirit of God begins to really capture our hearts? The old pathways, the old lifestyles, the the old ways of thinking begin, they don't work anymore. So if you've been frustrated, you know, and, and I think that this, it doesn't matter. You could have been a Christian for 25 years or for 25 minutes, but if you find that you keep trying to do some of the same old things and they're just not working, that's probably because the Spirit of Christ is doing something new and different in your life. Yeah, but I've been a Christian 25 years. I hope after 25 years, the Spirit of the living God is still doing new and different things in your life. I hope you still are finding pathways that don't work for you anymore. Because conversion, if if a person comes to know Christ, there's something that happens in those moments where the Spirit of God fills us and and we experience new life. But everything doesn't just change in that moment. You still have crazy thought patterns. You still have crazy habits. You still have crazy ways of thinking that you're right all the time. Uh, These things take years years and years and years and years and years and years to fall off and be formed and be shaped along the way. So my prayer is that whether it's been 25 minutes or 25 years, that the Holy Spirit is still leading you down new paths. I love that the wise men take a different path to get back home. Because they've met the Christ. They've met the Christ. They've had an experience. They've had something has changed within them. And it changes now even the path that their life is on. So over the next week, here here would be my hopes for us. I have a couple of uh, just further thoughts for you, and i put them on your outline. And, And I would encourage you this week, use these. Think about these things. Number one, what might it look like in your life to follow the Spirit's lead, even if it means not knowing where you will be led? And these sojourners, these wise men, had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And thats I think that's the most beautiful part of this story and the most admirable part is, hey, we don't know where exactly we're being led, but we sense it in our gut. We sense it in our soul. What does it look like in your life to follow the Spirit's lead, even when you don't know where you might be being led? Number two, when you determine Jesus as Lord in your life, again, whether you determine Jesus as Lord of your life tonight or you've determined that a million times over the last 16 years. When you determine Jesus is Lord in your life, what are you displacing from that place? So again, Jesus is Lord over my... When do we finally give Jesus our finances? Jesus is Lord over my... When do we give over our intimate lives to to Christ? Jesus is Lord over my... When do we give over our relationships? Or whatever it is. But see, when we make Jesus Lord over something we are displacing what currently was serving as Lord in that area. And then number three, upon encountering the Christ, what old pathways might you leave behind in order to walk in new life-giving pathways? So I want to encourage you, think on these things this week. I encourage you to go back and read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Read it from a maybe a little bit of a different perspective. Look at the players. Look at Herod. Look at what Herod's doing. Look at the wise people. Look at, Look at the response and how the Spirit, where do you see the Holy Spirit at work in this particular passage? And what does it look like as it forms your own life? Amen?